everyone, Owen here, and you're listening to In for Black Archive, our podcast where we're trying to go through the entirety of Doctor Who back catalogue. This is just a quick heads up to let you know which on Wednesday we'll be releasing a short special episode to see what we think will be coming up in for new special broadcasting on Sunday. And then on for mon- Monday, we'll be discussing what we thought of the newest episode. But until then... Enjoy this episode looking at the Ambassadors of Death. I hope you've got your Ambassadors ready because it's time for death. It's time for the Info Black Archive review of the Ambassadors Sorry. of Death. <laughs> I hope you've got your Ambassadors ready. <laughs> what am I, as a, a nation state? <laughs> Do I? Hold on a minute. <laughs> let, me, let me actually think through what, like the logic and logistics of what you've just yeah. said. Yeah. So... I have to have ambassadors for a start. Yes, you do. Yeah. And they have to be primed and ready. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> who have, doesn't have ambassadors? Have, have ambassadors on standby. Hello and welcome to Info Black Archive, where we're here, not live, but we are in person. James is sat directly in front of me. If I wanted to, I could stroke his face, but I will not. But, but instead, we are going to be talking about the third coloured Doctor Who special, not really a special, but you get what I mean. It's the Ambassadors of Death. So I hope, James, you have got your Ambassadors ready because it is time for death. It's the fourth fourth try on I've hope you've, I hope you've got your Ambassadors ready. Um, so yes, welcome to this discussion of international diplomacy well, uh, it's and not, death. It's not international. It's planetary diplomacy. I suppose it is planetary diplomacy. There is an exchange going on. That's yeah. one of the big things. Yeah, but before we even touch on that, I want to blow your mind. (laughs) I'm happy happy you said mind. I said this was our third coloured Doctor Who episode. Mm. But that's wrong, isn't it, James? Is it? Are you... Right. How, How are you... How are you considering this? Because, yeah, if you count... If you count the Peter Cushing stuff, then of course this isn't the third in colour who story did, there is. Did you notice the quality of the colours were different between episode one and the rest of the story? I suppose I did, yeah. That is because we don't have any... Actually, we do have one, but we'll go into that later. We don't have any original colour copies of that first episode. So the, they've had to be the post-coloured. They've had to be post-coloured. They've had to be post-converted from black and white copies. Yes. But do you know how they did that? Uh, they didn't do... They didn't do the really paper process they used to do where they had to get artists to actually colour it in frame by frame. No, it's actually a lot more clever than that. So essentially, how they do the... How they filmed the black and white version. So essentially, they always would film a black and white version of a colour format to send to overseas nations where they didn't have... Didn't have, have colour, yeah. Didn't have colour. Because this was in that transitional time. Mm. But there's a bit of an anomaly when you film the colour TV into black and white. Mm. You get these things which are called chroma dots. Yeah. And essentially, the reason why we've got this colour is by mistake. Because normally, what they're supposed to do is filter that out because it makes the black and white look shit. Mm. They didn't, and it, but they were able to analyse those chroma dots and give us some sort of colour. Yeah, so they were able essentially to to retro to re, to reverse engineer it. Yeah. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, and turn it back into the colour. Yeah, quite clever. Yeah, really. So, so there is 
one known original copy. It, I say original as in like it's original from BBC. It's actually just someone's recording of it mm. onto a terrible colour tape. But those colour tapes are broken and they've got a lot of rainbow effects. So that's not what we're seeing here mm. because it just doesn't work. Yes, they've had to sort of create a natural colour by making an educated guess, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Does the educated guess play off? I'd say it does. Yeah, did it, notice it. I did, but also I knew about it. Exactly. If if you know what you're looking for, you'll you'll always find it. Yeah, but I think it. One thing I noticed with it is that on episode one, so essentially we're set in this massive sort of like space agents space center kind of thing, and there's a speak event. Mm. In episode one, it's gold. Mm. After episode one, it sort of goes into a dirty silver. Well. Colouring sort of half worked. Yes. At least we can say. But now we've gone through the technical stuff. What were your initial impressions of this episode? So this is the narrative, the narrative discussion. Mm. I do want to preclude this narrative discussion by saying that um, uh, initially Owen did a take of this where he said that this podcast was being recorded live, which implies that some of the podcasts we've recorded together weren't done live, <laughs> as if, as if like you know, one of us recorded our bit twelve hours after. We have done that once. Have we have we ever done no? But I genuinely mean, have we ever had a conversation that's not been live? Technically, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, if you count the magic of editing, where we've maybe changed some things. No. Um. So, first of all, our trailer. Okay, but the trailer's not a podcast. That's a trailer. Yeah, but I we essentially couldn't arrange a time to record it together, so I bodged together old. Clips could be pre-recorded like three episodes. I bodged together clips of that. Into yes, you did. Something which sounded relatively normal. But then also, at the start of the podcast, I think it was for the Comic-Con announcements, mm. we couldn't find time to talk together live. Yeah, So we kind of did this fake conversationary thingy. We half did, didn't we? Yeah. Was yeah. it? Was it? How did we do that? Did uh, you end up sort of asking a series of questions I and then was... I just sort of sent you some answers across? Yeah. yeah. All right, okay, so, there may so, be... So we did technically do it. It wasn't an entire episode, yes. All right, fine, but, but we have done something similar to that before. We have done non-live. So this is a good old live in person. Uh, we also watched this episode together, all seven parts of this. And it's quite yeah. rare we get to do that. Yeah. So that was enjoyable. I now literally live on the other side of the country. In a different country, actually. Yes, in a whole different country, in a union that is slowly breaking apart the seams. Uh, but overall, then, this episode is a lot... I think at, at around the end, around the three episode mark, I said to you, "This episode's getting too complicated for its own good." Mm. But did it manage to uncomplicate itself into some sort of storyline towards the end? Just, but but that was only because they sort of had to focus on the pure essentials of the story for the ending to work. Yeah. There was so much convoluted plotting. Mm-hmm. that got us to that point so that when you got to that stage you didn't realize you were really at the ending because half the time you didn't really know what to follow yeah it's a very cluttered story this one mm-hmm. and I, I think you were telling me before this doesn't in terms of the classic who story pantheon or hierarchy this isn't reviewed very well so the writer of this episode david Whitaker, mm. says this is the worst his most hated episode which he's written but there's actually a reason behind that for on his side, which is he barely didn't write any of it. He didn't yeah, write okay. much of it. So it was sort of passed through different writers, but credited to him at the end. 
which is which is usual practice i should say but i've just also just been reading just now this was actually originally written for jamie mccrimmon and zoe oh so this would have been um this is essentially an off cut of season six yeah that was then repurposed later on which is i mean when you consider it's been repurposed from a doctor episode where there is a tardis yeah um that's pretty good going yeah it's actually I don't honestly. I don't see how this would work with Zoe. No, not really. Which almost explains why it's been passed through so many different writers. Because I imagine the changes would have been extensive. Yeah. To get that to work, particularly because you've got Lethbridge Stewart, who may or may not have been present in the original draft. John Pertwee's Doctor definitely wouldn't have been. Yeah. Liz Shaw definitely wouldn't have been. The unit dynamic, the being, you know, because. In case you haven't listened to the podcast we've done before, we're very much in a newish who this season. Yeah. Everything's had a fresh lick of paint, quite literally, this colour now, and feels very different. So it's quite impressive in, in some ways that this episode even exists mm-hmm. because it's essentially been written for a different programme. So does it does it actually translate across, in your view, to being a good episode? As in this episode now? Yeah, yeah. This I, is the Ambassadors of Death now. I think it starts off and goes really over complex but i think as it goes on it sort of starts to settle down a lot more in something which makes sense yes i think it's made a lot easier to understand by just the fact which <laughs> it's made a lot easier to understand by fact which essentially it comes down to our main villain of the piece the general mm. just double crossing pretty much everybody he wants yeah to. out of a out of a sense of moral duty yeah <laughs> very moral very dutiful uh yeah I- i'm with you really the issues you've got is that it's not until about episode five that you really get a clear sense of what the narrative is there's a lot of active questions yeah potentially too much not a lot of clear answers and then it feels like the script just keeps on adding in plot points when really it should be streamlining it is very much in a bizarre way what flux could have been i suppose so if, if they were if they were able to end flux properly it would have been very much flux-esque as in that chipnell kept adding more and more elements yes to it. until he realized it was over but and then he... unlike in this story where they do i mean i quite like this ending it wasn't that bad i think the ending is fine yeah it, it's a bit sudden yeah i'll say that but it makes sense in story sense doesn't it yes it, it resolves everything even if it does, even if it does it very quickly, but it but it does remind me a little bit of Flux in the sense that it felt like they all of a sudden had to have an ending, yeah, and so they put one in there. It worked, but mm. it didn't feel like they'd really built it up. And with a seven parter, you've got the rooms have a bit of a five ten minute epilogue, whereas this really does just get out. Yeah, it it, it straight up the Doctor does his typical right. We're leaving now. Goodbye. Yeah, he's done. Oh, I've sorted this, and he's off, and that's it. And the entire thing ends. And you think to yourself. If you've got seven episodes, surely you can pace things out properly to have a bit of pace, yeah. have a bit of a better pace in that last episode. It just, it confirms in my mind that the whole thing was a bit botched and a bit rushed. I think, And they're trying to pack so much in. It, it, in a bizarre way, it's got the, this is too many cooks scenario of mm. there's too many different writers somewhere involved in this. Yeah, it does feel a bit of a hodgepodge in some places it's hard to it's hard to get what the central story is but what is easier to get is the characters because we haven't yes. changed those 
Save a doctor. Should we start with doctor? Yeah, we can start with John Pertwee. Yeah. Um, this is a story where you just feel like, once again, this doctor is coming into his own. He's yeah. finding him, his personality. Mm-hmm. And what his personality is, is sort of similar to Doctor Who and the Silurians, which is the last one we covered. Very direct, very focused. Not a lot of room for joking around, really, no. with this doctor. There's some, yeah. and it's welcome, but it's always in the right place. When when something serious is happening, there is not a serious joke. He's also mastered the ability to speak like every public schoolboy in 1970. The amount of old chaps this man drops for being a Gallifreyan is pretty shocking. But my, my favourite one is when he comes up against opposition and he just shuts them down. Mm. He does have a very he has a um, he's very well written I think yeah. in terms of the language he gets to use he's I think the best word to describe John Pertwee's doctor is pithy mm-hmm. he is more than happy rather than to prove you wrong to cut you down before you get the chance with a witty yeah. remark or an aside yeah I think the one which I'm particularly thinking about is the one between him Cornish and the general. Mm. Where yeah, they're kind, kind of just having an argument about who's in charge of the base, that kind of area. Mm. Yeah, he just has this ability to cut straight to the point, not mince around. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that you notice is, once again, this is the action hero doctor. This is the doctor that does stuff. This isn't the Hartnell doctor mm. that sort of said, oh, well, we must do something. Ian, why don't you punch that man? Yes. Uh, this is the Doctor who goes out and punches the man, if necessary. Yeah. Even though Lethbridge Stewart can do that. Yeah. It's a different kind of action those two do. You know, we get we get to see Alistair sort of punch people and have a bit of a fight. But the Doctor's action is always the big, heroic, daring thing now. When it never used to be. No. So you mentioned him there. What do you think about Lethbridge Stewart? Yeah, we can talk about um, Alistair. Just a joy to watch. Yeah, he he's always good to watch, even when there's not a lot of good in the episode. There, he's, there's good things about Nicholas Courtney. Can I just say, in this episode, there's not really much for companions to do. No, Liz. I mean, we can talk about Liz in a minute, but yeah. her narrative is pretty much capture, escape, capture, escape, capture, escape. Um, Alistair's sort of on the sidelines. He, he's doing his own investigation, yeah. really. Uh, there's very few scenes that Pertwee and Courtney get together. Mm. in this story they're mainly on their own paths figuring out this huge vast conspiracy with all sorts of plot points that you lose very quickly uh they're figuring that out in their own way and Mm. so by the time they meet up they sort of know each other's sort of the other half of each other's stories Mm. and so by the end it sort of aligns for both of them but yeah this is probably the first real example i can think of the Doctor Who team going, okay, we've got our new team. What happens when we split them three ways? Yeah. Because for the most part, these characters are on their own solo stories yeah. for the majority of it. And also, just on for Doctor and for Brigadier's sort of relationship, mm. how do you feel like the aftermath was handled between the ending of the Silurians? Because it is mentioned here. It is mentioned, yeah, which is a good example of... um the Doctor, rec- uh, the Doctor, you seem recognizing that there is a crossover now between episodes. They can't really cut out of stories. They're not in silos, are they? No, they're not in silos because he doesn't get to leave that environment. So yeah. those things have to be hang-ons. 
it's mentioned briefly, but then after that, it's sort of, okay, we've mentioned that now and we go yeah. on. It sort of reverts. It'll be interesting to see whether in future episodes, the morality question that was brought up by the Silurian ending becomes more important to the stories themselves yeah. and whether that means more conflict between uh, Doc and Brigadier. But it's very much colleague like when like you and your colleague have a disagreement and then the next day you grab a cup of tea and you're back yeah, to it. You go, okay, well that happened, but we move on because we have to. Yeah. And both of those characters are very much in the stiff upper lip category, I guess. Mm. They both just move on, get on with the job at hand. You know, Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart is one of the most stiff upper lip characters. Yeah. Probably in the history of fiction. He's he's the ultimate example of well, get on with this then. Mm-hmm. And they do. Uh, and then Liz. Yeah. I think what she does do in this is very good. Because we're not... I know which, last time I complained which she is a top scientist. But she kind of got shoved to do the paperwork. Mm. This time, she does do the science. She, she does get kidnapped, but she isn't a sort of damsel in distress. She no, gets most of the time she's it. planning her own escapes. And... She, she's attempting to work out ways to escape or she's doing the science which she's being asked to do and told to do. And we also get a lot of, we also get a bit of backstory with Liz. I mean, there's that nice thread they have with Dr. Lennox, yeah. who's one of the enemy team's scientists. He's been, you know, drafted in possibly against his will to do this. And we find out that Lennox and Liz have met before mm-hmm. on different projects. And so Liz is known in that world. Which is good. It means that she has more of a lived-in sense. Yeah. You feel like she exists outside of the episode. Which is partly why I think for our end-of-season special, we're going to get rid of the best setting because it's all big one setting. We're all bu- we're building one world, yeah. which is a total contrast to how it was. And so far, I think they're doing a pretty decent job of it. Yeah. There's a lot of common threads between episodes. For example, um, one thing I've been noticing is that there's a surprising media presence in all of the stories we've watched. Yeah. Like, it, it does get brought in there, and there is a there is a unified sense going on. They're trying to build, uh, like, a rounded picture of what this sort of event would do mm. on Earth. You know, how would normal human people react? Yeah, because a big element, particularly in episode one, and in the last episode, we've got a TV journalist there who's got the smoothest voice you've ever heard. Oh, yeah, he's um, purring, purring down the mic. Yeah. Bit like this, sort of showing off. Actually, it's a really nice way to do, explain to viewers the context about what's happening, particularly in that first episode. Yes, that is really. It's it's not the smartest exposition. It's fairly cheap, but it's very well done. But it's it like, works. It's like it? a, it's like a Big Mac. Yeah. You know, it's it's cheap, and you know it's cheap, and you know it's probably microwaved up, but it is nice. And and I think it helped with that which. It's done well and it works. Yeah, it works within the context of the story. Yeah. It doesn't feel out of place. Nothing, I would say, feels out of place. It's just there's a lot of stuff that is in place that crashes into each other. Mm. And so, particularly in those opening episodes, you're trying to get a grip of what of what really the whole mystery is. It's almost too mysterious for its own good. Yeah. And just one side character I want to shout out as well. Cornish. Yes! He is our side character. He is in charge of the space expedition. But the thing I liked about him was the fact which he was critical of the Doctor, but he did the opposite of what we've had previously with these scientific, like we had previously with Dr. Lawrence. He's critical of the Doctor, but then starts to realise he is right here. He does a Stewart 
and just rolls with the punches and becomes a really good ally of the Doctor as the story goes on. Yeah, Cornish is a really good character. Like, a really good character. One of the highlights of this. Because I think most of the time, when we talk about the side characters on Who, they're usually the big showy ones. Yeah. Like, they have a great big thing. Like, Maxible has his whole kill, kill, kill thing and his want to turn everything to gold. Um, Even Dr. Lawrence in the last episode, we did. Um going on and on about being in charge of the facility. Those are really memorable, easy things. Cornish is good because he's sort of a humble character. There's nothing too distinctive about him. Like, he's very realistic. Like, you can definitely yeah, see you imagine person, him in just in the real world. You can imagine this person doing this job, coming across this scenario. Whereas, say, with Dr. Lawrence in the Stylorian episode, you don't really... I don't think someone in that he's position... He's a caricature. ...would be so thick. Mm, exactly. Those are... Those characters, even Maxwell, who I love, are caricatures. Yeah. They are highly dramatised, wouldn't really exist in our day-to-day lives. But Cornish is the sort of person that you can imagine being your manager at work or um, something like that. Yeah. He just sort of feels like he exists. And you get a sense that he's very emotionally invested in what's going on. I think one of the big issues we've had in... Doctor Who stories before when we've had like a management structure at an organisation and we've had a lot is that it's less about the thing it's just more about their own their own feelings like they're trying to make themselves feel good because the thing is successful so I will feel good whereas Cornish is well I want the thing to be successful so that it's successful he he at one point outright tries to get over the head of his of a person like in charge in charge I've forgotten his name Quinn uh oh yeah um it's the it's the democrat it's the government guy. Yeah. Quill Quinlan? Quinlan. James Quin- Quinlan. Yeah. That's he, his face. He goes essentially goes, You're trying to stop me doing this. If you do stop me from doing this, I will go for press. Yeah. And thank you very much. Goodbye. He takes he takes the decisions I think a lot of people would, and he takes them selflessly. Yeah. Sure, he's got his own ends, but in the reality, Cornish's motivation is to save the astronauts. Yeah. Because they're his responsibility. The entire setup for this episode is that we've got some astronauts which are stuck in space. This is probably a good jump into the story to be honest. We can just go straight in. Yeah, because the story is essentially based around we've got some astronauts some astronauts who went to Mars who got stuck. So we've got a recovery rover going up. We get introduced to it this way here we've got the astronaut going up going up to save them, bring them down to work out what's going on. And then Issues arrive. Yeah, so there's a there's a probe that goes up seven months before the story with these two astronauts, and suddenly communication cuts. Yeah, got no idea what's happened. Seven months later, with the world enveloped in this mystery, they send this other probe up, and that's where we kick in. And this probe suffers the exact same fate. Yeah, communication suddenly cuts with no explanation as to why. Naturally, the Doctor is watching it. In his TARDIS TV, which is something we've not seen before. Yeah, he, he's TARDIS TV. His office lab space. Yes, he's the turned TARDIS the TARDIS into on. an office. It's interesting that, that Liz goes in there. He don't get any. Expl- she doesn't get the whole "oh, it's bigger I, here" thing. I think it's because he removed the console from the TARDIS and just shoved it into a standard office. Ah, that would make more sense. Quite clever, actually. Yeah, it's, it's like a big, um, it's, it's like, like a big ornament. Yeah, to try to see sort of like repair it. I think it's the first time we see Fatality Console in colour. Yes, it is. Episode it is well. definitely because we haven't. Se- we saw um, in the first episode in Spearhead, he goes into the TARDIS, but we always see it externally. Yeah, we, we've only had external shots of the TARDIS. 
yeah, so yeah, nice to see it internal or at least inside out, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, naturally, Doctor Concerned runs over to the base and tries to figure out what's going on. There's this screeching noise, this signal that's been played over. <laughs> it's not quite like that. It's more like a siren than a than a dying cat. The, the, you know, we'll get to the we'll get to the dying cat episodes of uh, Who eventually. You just wait till Colin Baker. Um, we deduce quite quickly that this is a signal. And it's some someone or something trying to send a message. Yeah. But, and you're going to hear a lot of me saying this, we kind of lose track of that plot point because all of a sudden we get all this stuff about a wild conspiracy. But we don't know. We do come back to that point. We, yeah, we come back to that point, but there's so many points we, we, yeah. we go through to get there that your head gets scrambled. Yeah, so we go to try to solve that and we have our first twist our first cliffhanger which will be completely duplicated around five times yes, during this story which is we the, will never see the end of it which is the hello character I have a gun and I would like to shoot you with it smash cut to ooh, ooh. Yeah. yeah and this really does happen constantly it's like they couldn't find another way the only other unique cliffhanger I can think of is Liz Shaw dangling over a dam which is then instantly picked up from, and then we move on. Yes, and it really is kind of a pointless endeavour. Yeah, it really is just a case of... No, this was fine, actually. Yeah, we we just need to cliffhanger here, to be honest with you, mate. We just need to, you know... You, know. <laughs> you can just tell that it was it was kind of botched into the seven-part structure, and yeah. I'd be interested to be a bit of fly on the wall of the writers' meeting, I'll tell you that. Wait, we need to end this episode now. We've got Liz running across the dam. How, how do we? How, how do we end this? This is a really intense fight. What if scene. it looks like she's going to fall in the water, but actually she falls she's over, not really at threat? She falls over the edge. Done. We've we've done it here. We've done it here now, folks. Good up. Goodbye. Yep, and done. There's a lot of episodes like that where it just feel like sudden endings happen and they're kind of placed in an odd way. Yeah. So outside of the whole there are potentially astronauts in space and potentially aliens up there. There's a great big plot going on on the ground involving, there's like a French scientist is involved in this and a whole bunch of petty criminals. And then there's this ridiculous thing about burying bodies in a in a quarry, yeah, which doesn't really add anything to the story. It does. I didn't think it did. It's the, um, they essentially, so, so essentially the entire thing is based around the ambassadors of death. That's kind of what they give. We don't really get the name of the aliens, but they are essentially the aliens. They're, who, they're referred to as ambassadors, the ambassadors of this race, yeah. Who get captured by the general who essentially wants to kill them all off. Kill them all off because he's scared of them. Is that, 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 that's the entire plot point, essentially, in a nutshell. Yeah. He's scared. He's, he went up on the Mars rover. These guys accidentally, it's kind of put across, killed his colleague. Yeah, he, not realising that they would do that by touching them, which is a convenient one. Um, and the general is terrified, terrified of them, so he wants to kill them. The ambassadors of death are radioactive because they live off ra- of radiation, essentially. Mm. They feed off it. So essentially, they wanted the heavies to come into the base to grab the ambassadors, shove them into a van, but they didn't really want those heavies to know about them. Yes. So conveniently, they get to go in there, they won't hurt you. They probably don't hurt them. The radiation does. Mm. And then they kind of need to get rid of the bodies. So then they go into the quarry. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the whole 
trick with this episode is that you're led to believe that the astronauts have been recovered yeah for a while but actually they're the ambassadors mm-hmm. there's a there's sort of like a the the theory that goes around at least is that they're the astronauts and that they have been infected essentially with this radiation yeah that's made them basically feed off it like the aliens do and they can kill you with one touch yes but around that there's a lot of diplomacy and a lot of it feels like everyone's sort of in on it like the, the government's yeah. in on it the general's in on it the scientists are in on it criminals are in on it it's a it's a great big thing and i don't think anyone really understands with the exception of carrington what the point of it is yeah everyone kind of has their own Reasons, rationale yeah. behind taking part in this conspiracy like i think the only one who generally sort of knew which wasn't for general was the computer technicians who name i've forgotten french scientists oh um titanian yeah titanian i think he might have had a clue about what was going on yeah but other than that we've got people out there who's in it for their own gain really mm. we've got the politician quint Twitter. james quinlan yeah he wants the glory essentially of staging a first contact yeah he he wants to stand there with a the camera shake not shaking these guys hands <laughs> you know uh you know doing air kisses yeah 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 look we will live peacefully with these people um the for heavy the main heavy mm. essentially just wants them to steal some banks yep and yeah then- they would like to just do crime and then there's just a load of random side heavies which just kind of exist. Who all have their own... They're all at their own ends, but it's Carrington who's, who's brought this crew together without telling them really why, because mm-hmm. he has his own plans. Mm-hmm. And as the episodes go through, we go up that chain of command, I suppose, until we end up at, at Carrington and we recognise that he is kind of the mastermind of it all. Mm. But all of that is clunky to explain. And if it's clunky to explain, it's clunky to watch. It- it's clunky to explain because they keep twisting it into different stories. Like, we we first learn which of all the government is involved because these people have got... I've got, got, completely forgotten what they called it now. Something radiation. Continuous radiation. Yeah, it's a self-sustaining. Self-sustaining radiation. But then that's also a lie. We've got other people in there. But it's only really explained what's going on towards the end of it. It's just a, a lot of confusion on top of a lot, a lot of confusion. Exactly. And then because you've got... Uh, because you've already got all this plot, the decision to split the Doctor, Liz, and Alistair feels like a bad move. I understand it because you've got so much plot that you have to investigate it yeah. from all sides. But the problem with that is you've already got three stories going on and they've all got complicated plots. Mm-hmm. And so... There is just too much going on yeah. in the first few episodes. And it is only until around episode five where we realise that we're sending the Doctor into space to investigate this yeah. that we find the story, I suppose. It's only at that point where we hit, okay, that's the central goal now. This is for twist. This is for real twist. They are just there for to be ambassadors. They want to help us. Yeah. So shall, shall we fly straight over towards that? Mm-hmm. Um, because towards the middle of the episode, it becomes clear that the only real way to find out what's happened is to send another recovery uh, probe up. And this time the Doctor is the pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because essentially, you know what? If we've had a situation where three pilots have gone up and we're not 
highly sure if they've come back down again. No other pilot surprised you want to go up there. Yeah, but you know, shock horror, really. The doctor's like, whatever, he'll do it. So he does it, and first time this doctor's been in space. Yes, the first time this doctor's been in space. So it's good for him. Um, nice for him to get sort of back in the back, back in his habitat. Seat. Back in the driver's seat. Yes. He's been driving all season. He's got that car. Oh, good old Bessie. Good old Bessie. I, I love that. I love the sequence where Lethbridge Stewart has to use Bessie to get to the character's base. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. There's that. There's a brilliant smash cut they do. Of, you go, well, the Doctor partner's car. And he, <laughs> he turns around and goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he has to suffer the indignity of being in that thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a nice way to address that the fact is that Lethbridge Stewart and the Doctor, in normal circumstances, would never be friends. No, but they are. It's a standard work thing, isn't it? How you've got people who, if you met them in the park, you'd never speak to them. No, if but it was be- your own choice. But because you sit next to them, you kind of become friends. You develop yeah. this good working relationship. You've been pushed. They've been pushed together by circumstance. Yes, and that's what's led to this. Yeah, so he goes up the Doctor in another recovery probe. Gets to the Mars probe from before, locks in with it, and then mad old stuff starts to happen. There's a sort of 2001 a Space Odyssey style sequence that emerges where he gets teleported into the alien ship. He then finds all the astronauts who all... I don't think, to be fair, I don't think he's teleported in. See, I always I thought th- he was. I th- I it was like he was, was like, beamed in. I thought he was just knocked out and then kind of woke up inside the ship which I'm assuming got kind of enveloped in sort of like it's his yeah. loading bay the only reason I say against that is because the aliens can't touch him so they couldn't have brought his body in physically I don't Otherwise, think they did bring be... his body in did they I think he woke up on, on the shuttle in the shuttle yeah well he, he, yeah, he found he, he, a way he wakes, wakes up in the shuttle because oh the no amazing... he is always in the shuttle isn't he because the astronauts we've got are the there bizarre, we've got the bizarre step thing where he kind of levitates down oh that is hilarious yeah it's it's like a really early green screen yeah like really cheap green screen but that's just what they did at the time it's basically i I think essentially what they did was they had him like standing still and they just lured the camera down an inch Mm. which made it look like he kind of levitated down i have to say this is a bit of a tangent but i think we should do it there are a lot of excellently bad bits of production value in this episode that are the a cheesy in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. There's a particular sequence I like where um, who what was the name of like the main heavy in the enemy plot? He he wanted to use the ambassadors just as killing machines. Yeah, uh, really, he didn't have any other desire other than his own gain. Mm-hmm. He, but he's almost like the second in command. Yeah, massive asshole. I think Regan. Regan, that's his face. Yeah, I liked Regan. Um, he seemed very he seemed just on the right side of deranged where yeah. it wasn't too over the top you, you could definitely believe him of just going oh I've had this thing shoved into my arm which make me able to rob banks let's go do it he's yeah he, he's a bit power hungry and... he's perfectly believable of just let's just abuse what we've been given here exactly and he does um, there is a great sequence where he's sort of running up and down some stairwells and there's guards there and his approach to taking oh, guards God, out. Fighting scenes. His approach to taking guards out. So, so Owen, how would you, if you had to take a guard out, how would you, you know, get that out of the way? Because you don't necessarily want to kill him. Like, you mean you, you just double foot to kick him off the railings? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I do. Yes, he, uh, 
the only way to describe it is he Bruce Lee's them. Yeah. Off of Ray. <laughs> and there's some where he sort of gives them a gentle push, but then there's a sudden camera cut and he's six feet closer to the edge and yeah. suddenly flips off it. Uh, yeah, the fighting scenes are pretty shocking. Even the the easy to film ones. There's some way you can bad. Where you can go, yep, that fist was around ten foot away from his stomach. The only thing they are missing, ladies and gentlemen, is um, pow, bam, <laughs> wallop wow. cards. Yes, going in between them. Uh, yeah. So what else is there to discuss about this story then? Uh, the ending, uh, because yeah. we're still kind of on that. So he arrives in the ship, doesn't he? And then the astronauts and all there, all fine thinking that they're watching the football i mean why not why not and they believe that they are actually on earth but they're in quarantine they're in extended quarantine and they're waiting to be let out obviously they're not um the doctor tells them they're not they're like oh are we not and then all of a sudden the aliens just sort of reverse that out of their memory very easily yeah they're they're under some sort of mind control because i'm not convinced that tv was actually shown no it wasn't it was just sort of Lights. They were they were seeing what they were told to see. It was a bit like the Time Lord depiction of the War Games, actually, because mm. these this race that was never named was made to look very powerful. Yeah, like very very powerful, um, and they were a peaceful race, but you know they were fully willing to mess yeah. you up if you did anything against them. And once the Doctor and them chat, they get a little chat. We realise that the folks in the suits who've been radiating people to death with one touch are the ambassadors of death. Ambassadors of death, but they are there for peaceful reasons. For peaceful reasons, it, yeah. They are slightly misnamed here, aren't they? they it, it feels a bit bad calling them for the ambassadors of death because they straight up go, why are you holding I mean, the ambassadors captives? do kill a lot of people. Because they're being forced to. They are being forced to. They do do it. So you, they're, from they're, one they're, perspective, they are ambassadors of death. Yeah, but they, they're trapped going... They, they, essentially, they don't communicate. A big plot point is that the Doctor enables them to communicate and they essentially go... Why are you holding us captive? Why are you making us kill people? We're just here for peace. We're ambassadors. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is a bit just like getting diplomats to yeah. go around and do murders. Because that's just the way it is. Uh, yeah, and we soon find out that the astronauts are being held there because the ambassadors are being held on Earth. And so an exchange is proposed. You know, our ambassadors, your astronauts. Yeah. And we'll forget this ever happened. And which is essentially what happens. There's a bit of overthrowing of people, and but then we all come back at the end, all happy and dandy. Yes, everything gets resolved. Carrington gets arrested. Uh, he doesn't get like the proper comeuppance old generals used to. Remember, no. they just used to die in terrible ways. <laughs> but I, I feel like yes, his ending was rushed. Don't get me wrong, his ending was a bit rushed. But I felt like it was earned. It it felt natural, like a natural conclusion to things. It came up. To, I do agree. It came up to. It was a countdown scenario. We didn't really have a clock, but it was a countdown scenario of the... The alien essentially went, we don't get our ambassadors back. We We're will blowing you up. And for generals, they're going, we will kill them. So we kind of had a combination of separate timelines, countdowns going at each other. So it ended fast, but it felt like the story was setting up to end fast anyway. So it felt like it was natural, which is why we're talking so fast. It's because we really <laughs> was just a quick ending, which was so, yes, I agree. so well made. It's Yeah, it's very sudden, but does... It just doesn't overstay its welcome. The story no. is over. They just don't overstay it much longer. F- There's no real point to reflect. I feel like the only thing which I would say to make the ending better was, as you say, have a little bit of a prologue at the end. An epilogue. Epilogue at the yeah. end. Just because it does feel a lot like of a Doctor Good. Right, there you go. You're, you should get your 
astronauts eventually. They'll send them down. Yeah, so he's like, right, this seems but, sorted. I'm off the fuck up. <laughs> but wait, Doctor, I need some help. Oh, no, Liz, we'll be better for that. Goodbye. Have fun. Yeah, I'm we'll off. chat. We'll chat tomorrow, folks. Like, it's not a big deal. We'll see what's happening tomorrow. And that is, that's the end of the episode. Yeah. All seven parts of it. So overall then. Yeah. What's your feelings? And how would you rate it? Probably around a six. It was six. Because it is very watchable, but it suffers from the same issues that Doctor Who have Sly Orion's had, which is that it's just a tad bit too slow. Yeah. But it also has on top of that the fact which it is so complicated at points for not much reason. Mm. That's that's why I'm going to give it a six. That's fair enough. It, it's a similar sort of level to Sly Orion's. But with that, just a slightly knockoff point. Yeah, Slurin's felt a bit more consistent. Yeah. And a little less convoluted and, and had a, a clearer story. Oh, yeah. I'm going to give this a five. Yeah. Um, the reason is, is that it is just so choppy and so rushed. There is a lot to like about this story. Mm-hmm. And I think you can name multiple things that work really well. But I think... They've tried to pack too much story in. Mm. Actually, sorry, let me rephrase that. They tried to pack too much plot in. Yeah, and they've not got an awful lot of story, mm-hmm. and so you feel like you're just going between plot points a lot of the time. And because the characters are split up, not only do you lose that dynamic they were building up, it sort of feels like they traded that energy mm. in to do this. Um, I mean, there's an entire episode where I'm not entirely sure Liv was actually in it. Yeah, all all in all, it's very choppy. Yeah. And doesn't quite get clean. Towards the end, it does, though. And so I'm willing to give it that middle score. Because yeah. it does fix a lot of those issues later. Yeah. It does conclude nicely, unlike the sensor rights, where yeah. it does just so I feel like it. <laughs> yes, and there is our sensor rights reference yep. for this episode. We get paid by sensor right endings. And the administrator was dealt with. Yes, and so was this episode. So thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed what you listened to, please remember to subscribe. He's looking me dead in the eye. Subscribe now, James. If he, if you could only see into Owen Cranston's eyes, you would, you'd feel compelled to run away from that subscribe button. Run towards that subscribe button. <laughs> Got to give it a warmer look if you want to run towards. Yep. So, but James, how could they contact us? Uh, if you want to chat to us about all things Doctor Who, all things classic Doctor Who, or anything Ambassadors of Death related, uh, you can do that via Twitter at Black Archive Pod. That's got no spaces in it, as most Twitter handles do, now I think about it. And, <laughs> and you can email us on blackarchivepod at gmail.com, which is more relevant to say that there are no spaces, no caps. You never that. guess what? There's no spaces in emails either. No. No, there isn't. Why, why do I say these things? All I know is that it's time for the end of this episode. Say goodbye. No caps, no spaces. It's like it's just like a thing people say. No caps, no spaces. Doctor Who's got a lot of faces. We're on the third one now. (laughs) Will we ever get to the thirteenth or billionth one based on Chris Jibnall's thinking? This whatever happens when we get hold of handheld microphones. Goodbye. That's good. <laughs> <laughs>